We've just read Acts 16 where we've got the beginning of the Ecclesia there in Philippi and we've read about the conversion of Lydia and we've read about them being put in prison and the uh, prison keeper being converted and baptized and his whole family that, that same night. And so this was the basis for the Ecclesia in Philippi. Now Philippi was not only uh, a colony city, it was a garrison city, it was a military city uh, with a a strong Roman uh, presence there, military presence. And the message of course that Paul had was radically challenging therefore to people who lived in that sort of situation. Because he's accused in verse 21 here um, of teaching things which were absolutely impossible for Roman citizens to to accept. And in chapter 17, verse 7, elsewhere, uh, he's accused of doing things contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Well, the catch cry of the Roman Empire was that Caesar is Lord and only Saviour. And that was on their coins everywhere this was there in the Roman Empire. And so, when you read at the end of Jude and in other places, that Jesus is our Lord and only Saviour, our only Lord. And as many places in the New Testament you, you read that, this was absolutely radical. And it would have been very hard, therefore, for a Roman citizen or someone who'd like to be a Roman citizen to accept the message of Christianity, to accept Jesus as Lord, when it was going so directly against the imperial cult. And, of course, Paul was teaching that by baptism into Jesus, they became a citizen of spiritual Israel, a member, as it were, of the despised and captive Jewish race in in a spiritual sense. And so later on, when the Romans started to persecute the Christians, you read them saying things like, and this is a quote from Pliny, that Christians are unable by temperament or unwilling by conviction to participate in the common activities of our group or communities. Because, you know, Christians wouldn't have attended games and plays and gladiatorial uh, shows and stuff, wouldn't enlist as soldiers, um wouldn't be painters or sculptors because they'd have to uh, really go along with the idolatry, wouldn't be a schoolmaster because then have to teach all the, uh, the stories of the, uh, the pagan gods would have been difficult to do business because that required the taking of oaths and anything involved with uh, the, uh, the administration of the empire involved of course idolatry and accepting Caesar as lord So really, it's amazing that really Christianity was so successful. And yet, in fact, the the height of the challenge, I think, is what sort of gave it its power. It's like today, there are a number of people being baptized in Iran that I personally have been involved with. And I've been to Iran, and my thought as I flew out of that country was, why ever? Would anyone be baptized into the hope of Israel in a a place like this, where conversion uh, has got to be punished with the death penalty, and the person who's converted you must also be killed within three days of uh, the the fatwa going out? Why is it that anyone would even start to get interested in the gospel? And yet, so many Iranian people have been baptized, far 
more responsive in a sense than trying to preach the gospel in, in a self-satisfied materialistic western environment when people realize the height of the challenge they realize that this is for real this is life or death and I want life and I think that if we ourselves in our own lives perceive the radical nature of the call that it can't in that sense be easier for you and I to respond we who do not live for example under an oppressive radical Islamic regime like in Iran we who do not live in the first century in the age of the Roman Empire the imperial cult etc it's so easy for us to think well it's easier for us how lucky we are but not at all it cannot be that some people have an easier ride to God's kingdom than others in spiritual terms it must be just as difficult and so the fact that the gospel took off in Philippi of all places this Roman military colony is in a sense surprising in another sense it's not in the same way as it might be surprising that people in a, an oppressive situation uh, under radical Islamic rule in Afghanistan or Iran uh, would get interested in Christianity and learn the, the true gospel, the hope of, of Israel and be baptized into it that's kind of in a sense surprising but the more you think about it, not really when people see the radical choices in front of them they tend to take them in the same way as I think that if right now somebody came up to you and said right you Christian you really seriously believe in Jesus and the hope of, the, of his kingdom if you do I, I, shall, I shall kill you right now although we might sort of roll our eyes and think oh I hope that doesn't happen um, you know if it did and I know it may be hypothetical but if it did I like to believe that most of us would eventually say well okay go ahead the fact is we are being asked those kind of questions in the myriad of choices that we have each day because in a sense life is a stream of choices and the choice always in the end boils down to right or left light or darkness in the end of course we we can try to uh, find a third way but God works by providence in our lives and by the whole nature of his demands I think to bring us to that choice that it is either death with Jesus on the cross or throwing down the cross and walking away from it and insofar as we perceive that insofar as it is no longer surprising for us that we should be called to make radical choices of commitment then we I think will choose rightly for him so then <clears throat> getting back to the situation there in Philippi of course Paul wrote to the Philippians soon after he had uh, started the Ecclesia uh, as we read here in, in chapter 16 I'd like you to turn over to Philippians because that letter indicates time and again that it was written by Paul to the the people whom he had first converted and who were they Lydia and the women with with her and the jailer and his family so let's go back to Philippians there chapter 1 at verse 3 I thank my God upon every remembrance of you so he remembered his audience the audience of Philippians were personally known to Paul verse 5 I thank God for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now what was the first day? The first day was what we just read about in Acts 16. 
And he who's begun, he who begun a good work in you, well, that was Lydia and the earthquake and etc. He's writing to people who knew him personally, and so it must have been the group that we we've just read about: Lydia and her women, and the jailer and his family. Chapter one. Um, verse 30 he says you have the same conflict which you saw in me the same struggle which you saw in me the people he's writing to had seen Paul personally in Philippi verse 12 of chapter 2 as you have always obeyed not in my presence only but now in my absence so they had been in the presence of Paul chapter 3 verse 17 follow those who walk like us because we were your example. Chapter 4, verse 9. What you heard and saw in me, that do. So this letter is written to, as I say, the people we just read about in Acts 16. Lydia and, her fa- and her, the women worshipping with her, and the jailer and his family. This was the audience of Philippians. Because straight after the earthquake... Paul leaves Philippi and now he's riding to them now that would make sense that in chapter 4 of Philippians verse 2 when he beseeches two women who are arguing to sort of get on together and be of the same mind in the Lord in verse 3 he's talking about those two women Euodius and Syntyche when he says help those women which laboured with me in the gospel Well, those women he's referring to are the two women of verse 2. Interesting he would write about two women. Well, as far as we can work out from Acts 16, a fairly large proportion of the ecclesia were women. These were perhaps friends of Lydia, who used to worship with her outside the city by the river, and then Paul came and uh, explained the gospel to them. So then, It's been noticed that Philippians is full of military metaphor. All the time there is allusion to military terms and ideas. That would make sense writing to people who lived in Philippi in this military colony, and also writing to an ecclesia where half of them were the family of the jailer, who would have been, of course, a high-ranking Roman soldier. Let's just quickly go through them, although you can see them in a lot of standard commentaries. Philippians chapter 1, from verse 24, 25. uh, To abide in the flesh, this is uh, a term for staying in line, as a group of soldiers must stay in line. Um, Chapter 1. Uh, verse uh, 12 these things have fallen out unto the furtherance unto the progress it's a military term for the the progress of an army the advance of an army and he talks about the progress or the furtherance of of the gospel and uh, again in verse 25 he uses the same term for your furtherance your advance in a military sense verse 27 that you stand fast this again is military language standing fast 
in one spirit with one mind this is very much the language of a group of soldiers being asked to, to be totally united in their, in their movements striving or fighting together for the faith of the gospel verse 28 not terrified, not intimidated by opponents verse uh, 29 um, it's given to you to suffer uh, again military military language so then th- there's, uh, th- there's other examples there as well um, verse 30 the conflict this is very much uh, agon uh, in Greek the battle um, and when many times in chapter 2 he talks about presence uh, this is uh, again apparently a, a military word as you obeyed in my presence verse 12 um, this is the language of the presence of a military commander and do all this without grumbling uh, verse 14 this is what soldiers were told don't grumble and then maybe the obvious one um, 25 my co-soldier my fellow soldier so what's all that military metaphor teaching us the metaphor I think is, is teaching us that for us the spiritual life is a battle under the uh, commander of Jesus and so he's saying look you're not part of the military cult anymore the imperial cult you've now got a radically new way of seeing life and you know that comes through to us as well that it's not ticking a few intellectual boxes that now I understand a few things about a certain denomination so I shall be baptized as a sign of my assent to that rather are we asked to radically give ourselves to the Lord Jesus and realize as good soldiers that this is everything for us so I think all those allusions to the situation in Philippi as a military colony and half the ecclesia being the family of a Roman soldier it just shows again that Philippians was really written right to a group of uh, people who Paul knew the people who we read of in Acts 16 now in Philippians 2 you have a hymn this hymn about the greatness of Jesus verse 5 let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus and he's saying that the mental attitude of Jesus in his time of suffering should be ours now we've got a hymn that, that's, it's definitely written in poetry and rhyming uh, poetry here this whole apparently difficult passage um, from uh, really verse 6 down to verse 11 this is a hymn in Philippians 2 what's the other time you read about Paul singing a hymn well it's also in Philippi when he's in prison so my suggestion is that because the whole letter is so tied in back to Acts 16 that the hymn that Paul and Silas were singing in jail was actually this hymn and he's given them the words to it here in Philippians 2 there they were in jail clearly suffering for Christ and so they sung a hymn which reminded them that the mind of Jesus in his time of dying was to be theirs now what was done to Jesus was in essence done to Paul and Silas they were beaten and uh, when we read in chapter 16 
uh, let's maybe go back to chapter Acts 16, verse 23, that they laid um, they laid stripes upon him. This is the same word that you've got in Luke 23:26. Remember that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, and there's a lot of reference uh, from Acts back to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's the same word, Luke 23:26, about the cross was laid on Jesus. Stripes were laid on them, the cross was laid on Jesus. And of course, by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, very much the language of the crucifixion. But then, in Acts 16.24, we're told that they fastened uh, their feet, the feet of Paul and Silas, were fastened in the stocks, the AV says. Well, looking up that Greek word translated stocks, stocks is not really the right translation. It's the Greek word zulon, and that's the word usually translated tree, and it's commonly used in the Acts of the Apostles for the tree, as in the cross of Jesus. Um, they slew Jesus and hung him on a tree. Uh, if you want the references, Acts 5.30, and there are others. So, that word Zulon really is full of reference to the tree of crucifixion. And Paul's feet were made fast onto the tree. Exactly what happened to Jesus. And then there was an earthquake, verse 26. Now there was an earthquake when Jesus died. So you see, you see what happened. There they were in prison, and they saw some similarities between the sufferings of Jesus and what they were going through. And so they started singing the hymn that's in Philippians 2, saying, look, let's have the mind of Jesus, the mind that he had when he was suffering on the cross, because we're living out his sufferings, and there's an earthquake, as if God was saying, okay, I confirm you in your desire to see yourself as Christ crucified. And that's us, here as we break bread, as that bread becomes part of us and the wine, the symbol of his blood, becomes in a small way physically part of us. We are showing that I really want to be like Jesus on the cross, that he there is my pattern. In, in, in all my sufferings in life, I am living out part of his cross. I am fellowshipping, as Paul said, his sufferings. So that if we suffer with him, again Paul says, we shall also live with him. De death and resurrection. And their desire to be like that, just as your desire and my desire to connect ourselves with the death and sufferings of Jesus, that we might live with him. This was responded to by God, and he confirmed them in that by the earthquake, the similarity of um, with the crucifixion and Paul could not have orchestrated that earthquake that was brought about directly by God and I think that people perceived this that these men with their feet fastened onto the wood were in a sense Jesus because the prisoners heard them and of course there were thieves in prison and there were thieves uh, with Jesus crucified and one of them at least perceived also that truly this is the Son of God who has done nothing wrong. 
And there was, of course, a centurion at the cross who was also persuaded, just like probably this guy, this jailkeeper, was also a, a centurion. So then, it's all very similar. And I think that's where you get the huge significance of the fact that everyone's shackles were loosed. Just as through the death of Jesus, all the shackles that are on us, spiritually, are loosed. And I think it explains the old question, well, why didn't everybody run away? Why didn't all the prisoners bolt? Well, they didn't, because they were transfixed by these two guys, who were, as it were, Jesus. Jesus crucified to them. It wasn't only to the Philippians. You know, in the Galatians, Paul says in 3 verse 1, I was Jesus Christ was placarded forth, crucified amongst you. And he means, in my life, amongst you, you saw Jesus crucified. And this, of course, is why people who had never seen Jesus, people who were illiterate, could meet someone else like Paul and say, now I understand about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And finally, in verse 30, in the A.V., the prison keeper says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated sirs and the Greek word translated Lord in 31 is exactly the same. Kurios. So when he says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That could just as well be translated Lord, what must I do to be saved? And so the question is, well, um, was he speaking to them or to Jesus? And there's a purposeful ambiguity there. Because they were as Jesus. He says, Kurios, Lord, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Well, this is so much the... It, it could be to Jesus. It could have been to Paul. The point is that Paul and Silas were, as it were, Jesus. And of course they say, well, believe on the Lord. Believe on this Lord, this Sir, and you will be saved. And so, Jesus and the Father will confirm our desire, your desire right now, to be part of him, to be really living out what we're doing now in symbol, in this taking of bread and wine. Your desire to understand your own sufferings in terms of his. He will work by providence, like he did with the earthquake, to confirm you in that. And that will bring other people, like those prisoners, like the prison keeper, to him.